before uh, we go to bed or if we just want to kill some time at our house and watch a little bit of TV. Uh, I like to watch HGTV. And uh, it's just one of those uh, channels that you can turn on and, and just kind of enjoy watching people do house hunt, uh, hunting and uh, buying homes. But there's a lot of times I find that channel ridiculous. I don't know about you. Uh, I'll give you an example. We'll be watching it, and it, usually it's a really, really young couple, and they'll give their background to their story, and they'll be like, yeah, um, I'm a part-time barista at a coffee shop, and uh, my boyfriend or my husband, he's unemployed. He has been for a couple years. He's holding out for management, um, w which is all fine. But then, then they'll say, yeah, yeah, we're looking for a house and we're hoping to pay about 800,000. You're like a part-time barista. I, who is paying for these homes, you know? Uh, and, and then a lot of times they'll, they'll tour the home and I just, I don't know about you, but I just find it so off-putting, you know, that, that um, do I look like the type of person that wants to walk through kitchen? Right? I deserve better than that. You know, I'm 21, you know, and yeah. <laughs> I just find it off-putting. Or, you know, does the, do I look like I could live in this bathroom, right? Do I look like the type of person that wants it? And I, I, I'm watching it, and I'm going, it's fine. It seems fine to me, you, you know. But their standards are, they, they couldn't possibly live in that kitchen or, or with that bathroom. And the one that always kills me, I, I don't know about you, but is always, they go into the bedroom, and they're like, oh, I just love the natural light in here. You know where I don't want light shining in early in the morning? <laughs> Is this just me? I don't want natural, I want to sleep. So it's like, oh, when I see those windows, I'm just like, all I can see is at 5 a.m. in the summer. I, I'm going I'm to be awake, you, you know, so I just don't get it. But now all that being said, you can tell a lot about a person by the layout and feel of their home, right? If you come to our home, you're going to very quickly realize that we have children because if you take your shoes off, they're going to be pierced by Legos, right? <laughs> which is one of the most crippling, terrible things that can happen to you is you step on a, a Lego and it goes through your foot, right? And uh, you'll discover that we're a casual family. We don't, in our house, we don't have a ton of formal spaces. We, we just don't. We like to be casual. We like to be comfortable. But you can tell a lot about a person by the layout and detail of their home. And that's what this text is about. All right, we're, we're going to um, go back a couple weeks here that, that we've been uh, in this kind of section of Hebrews where he's comparing and contrasting the Old Testament way of doing things and the New Testament way of doing things. And today he's going to go back to kind of the tabernacle. Uh, later on, it becomes the temple. And he's going to look at the layout uh, and the furnishings of God's house in the Old Testament. And, and we're going to study this together a little bit, and, and he's going to um, make, uh, make the argument that, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater. This has become one of the themes of, of Hebrews, but he's going to do it through the lens of the furnishings of the house of God from the Old Testament. So we're going to start in Hebrews 9, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Sounds like a good place to start, right? All right. Um, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table and its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark covenant, uh, the, uh, the, the ark contained the gold uh, jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail 
now. All right, so let's pause right there. So the tabernacle, it goes back to a time when God's people were traveling uh, through the desert. They had been freed from slavery. They were on their way to the promised land. And God wants them to build, you could call it a worship space. Um, God wants them to build a worship space. It was a large tent. Eventually, it would become kind of the, a similar floor plan uh, to the temple that, that was built uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but it, it was more than a worship space. Here's what God said to Moses in Exodus 25, 8. He said, Uh, to them in the desert, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all the furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So it's more than a worship space. God was instructing them to build a home where he would reside among his people while they were in the desert. And God is saying in Exodus 25 verse eight, this is really important. The plans matter. The details matter. Make this exactly, God says, the way that I'm telling you to make it. Lay it out exactly the way that I'm telling you to lay it. You don't start building it and say, you know, God, I think what you want is really, really cool. But I mean, I think a second bathroom would be better, right? Don't do that, right? Build it exactly the way I am telling you to build it. And so the, the, you, this is just kind of an overshadow what Hebrews gives us. There's a lot more. If you want to study the Old Testament, there's a lot more detail about what the tabernacle and temple look like. But the writer of Hebrews, which is where we're going to stick, starts in the holy place. It was this outer room where the priests, if you were a priest from the tribe of Levi, uh, you could go into this room. It was called the holy place. And in that room, the first thing you would see when you went into that room was a lampstand a lamp. And uh, the lampstand, it was on the south side and it was opposite the table and it was solid gold. According to the Old Testament, this lamp, solid gold lamp, weighed 65 pounds. That's a big lamp. I I doubt you have a lamp in your home that weighs 65 pounds. It was made up of seven lights, which is the number of completeness in the Bible. It had to have been an impressive sight. You and I would never know that though, because we're not from the tribe of Levi. Uh, Only the Levites were allowed to go in there. Only a few uh, were were allowed in. And their job was to continually tend to the lamp so it never went out. The lamp was never to go out. So you can imagine the scene. You got this tabernacle set up, a huge tent. And then if you were, uh, you you and I, we'd be on the outside of the tent and you could see the light from this lampstand kind of peeking through the, the tent. Uh, You'd have access to it in that way. You you could see it. But they were tended to continually because this is part of the image that God wanted to project to his people. Here's the image. God's light shines all the time. Don't let that light go out. Because I want my people to remember when they're walking through uh, a sea of tents and they see God's tabernacle, I want them to see those lights peeking out of the corners. And I want them to remember my light shines all the time. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? God's light never stops shining. Um, I've experienced this numerous times in my life, but really over the last month is the most recent time where it's been a high stress, difficult time in my family, trying to find a nursing home for my dad who's been struggling with dementia. But I will tell you, I've repeatedly seen God's light in my situation. And you can point to seasons like that as well. Where it's like, man, it's kind of dark. It's kind of difficult, but I see God's light in this situation. And I'll tell you that years after Hebrews is written, uh, John, uh, one of Jesus' best friends, he has this vision, and, he, and it's called Revelation. It's about the end of days and uh, uh, heaven and all that stuff. But I want to show you how John starts out the book of Revelation. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. He hears this voice in the vision. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like the wool, wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And this is of course, Jesus. And here's the writer of Hebrews point, a 65 pound, seven pronged lamp is cool. But it is of no comparison to this image of Jesus who when he returns, he returns with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth and these feet that are glowing like bronze, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is more impressive. So the room goes on, that, that's, that's the lamp. It starts with the lamp and then we see this bread that, that's in this same room. It was called the continual bread, right? Um, you can read a story about David in the Old Testament. David and uh, his men got into a whole lot of trouble one time because they were wandering through and they were really, really hungry. And uh, they, they saw the tabernacle and they went in and they took the, the continual bread and they, they ate it for like a snack, all right? And it, really, really cheesed a lot of people off, right? And, and this became kind of a, a folklore story, but this was the continual bread and it was a food offering to God and it was a reminder that we're not gonna eat all the bread that we have. We're gonna leave some bread as an offering to God and, it's, and we're gonna, it's, it's a statement that we're trusting God to provide for our needs. So we're not gonna eat all the bread in the camp. We're gonna leave the continual bread as an offering to God to remind ourselves that God is gonna take care of our, our needs. And this is a very, very uh, similar imagery to New Testament giving. Right? In the New Testament, we're commanded to give. And part of the discipline of giving, part of the discipline as tithing is that I'm not gonna keep all my money to myself. That I'm gonna set some aside and that's gonna be an offering to God and I'm gonna be reminded that God is gonna care for my needs, that God is gonna take care of me. And Israel had very good reason to believe that God was going to provide for their needs. As a matter of fact, as we travel further into the tabernacle, we go into the most holy place where only the high priest could go in here, all right? The most holy place. And inside the most holy place, there was a gold jar in that room with some manna stored inside of it. Uh, and manna was a rich part of Israel's history that when they had been wandering through the desert, when God's people had been wandering through the desert, they got into the desert and they got hot, hungry, and tired. Vicious combination, right? Uh, if you've got children, you know this is a bad combination, all right? Hot, hungry, tired, it's not good. And they got into the desert and they're like, man, God's brought us out here to die. God doesn't care about us. God has forsaken us. God has turned his back on us. And so one of the things that God did is when they go to sleep uh, in their tent for the night, they would come out and overnight there was this bread that came down from heaven. They used to refer to it as what is it bread because they'd never experienced anything like it before. And they'd come out and they were supposed to take their bread just for the day because every day new bread was gonna arrive. And so God said, don't you know, fill up your tent with all this bread, don't do that. Every day I'm gonna do this miracle. And, and so every day they'd come out, they'd gather what they needed for the day, and uh, then the next morning it would happen all over again. It became known as manna, or bread from heaven. It was a symbol of God taking care of his people. And God's people believed, all right? And this is where it gets super interesting to me. I'm Bible geek though, all right? So if it's not super interesting to you, that's cool. But God's people believed that someday when the Messiah came, they believed that the Messiah was gonna replicate this miracle. 
of this bread coming down from heaven. And they said, we'll know the Messiah when he comes because he's gonna do the miracle in the desert. He's gonna bring down manna once again from heaven. And years and years later, Jesus happens onto the scene. And there's a day where about 5,000 men plus women and children, they come to hear him speak. They come to hear him teach. And Jesus gets done teaching and he looks around and he sees all these hungry people and he turns to his disciples and says, feed them. He says, feed them, Jesus. We don't have enough money to even feed a fraction of them. And, and so Jesus gets this boy's uh, uh, box lunch, basically, one of those lunchable things, basically, and he prays over it, and he feeds all these women and children, and men, women, and children. And if you're a Jewish person living at this time, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, Messiah. He's got to be the Messiah. He's replicating the miracle from the dead. He's doing, he's replicating this manna from heaven. And, And Jesus will go on in John 6 to affirm that he is the Messiah, but not for the reason they believe. Let me show you what Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and yet they died. (laughs) But there is a bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. That's in John 6, 48 through 51. Here's Jesus's point. I think it's so cool. He said, you thought the bread that came down from heaven was that boy's sack lunch. He says, no, that's not the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is the miracle in the desert. Jesus is the manna that came down from heaven and he gives life to the world. He gives life to the entire world. Whoever trusts in him, Jesus promises life. So the manna was not the boy's sack lunch. The manna is Jesus himself. I am the bread of life. See, manna in the desert is cool. It's awesome. I'm going to ask God to see it on replay. I really am. Because I think it would be super cool to see all these people come out of their tent, gather up what they need, go to bed the next night, come, wake up and it's there again. But... The writer of Hebrews is asking, what if there's something or someone that is better than bread in the desert? Something that satisfies beyond our physical hunger. So then as you go into the most holy place, then there's this thing of Aaron's budded staff. Aaron's budded staff. Now, I shouldn't affirm this to you because you, you trust me to know all this stuff. I had to look this story up. To, to be honest with you, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't remember off the top of my head. It's a really, really obscure story from number 17. And the, the story uh, goes that um, there came a time where God's people were challenging Aaron's priesthood. Talk, we've been talking in this series about how if you were from the tribe of Levi, uh, you could be a priest. And Aaron was the, the first one that, that started that whole thing. And people were starting to wonder, and it's a long kind of involved story from Numbers 16 and 17, uh, but people didn't believe Aaron should have the power anymore to be a priest. So God comes up with this really interesting thing. He says, all right, if you think you got somebody better to be priest, have all the tribes bring their staff, all right? We'll write their names on it. So have them bring their staff, lay them in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and I will, I will say who should be the priest, and it will be obvious to you. And so every, all the tribes come in, they lay their, they lay their staff down, they, they go to bed, and the next day they walk in, and Aaron's staff is budded, blossomed, and producing almonds, Super strange, right? <laughs> right? And everybody's like, Aaron wins. Aaron's, Aaron, Aaron wins, you know. His staff, his, his walking stick is producing almonds. 
And so God ordered that Aaron's staff be kept in the front of the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that God chooses for leadership who he chooses. And there's a couple stories in the New Testament that I think are kind of similar to this, where in Jesus's baptism, and then again, there's this story of the transfiguration where Jesus reveals his glory. Jesus's face is shining. He reveals it to his uh, disciples. And there's these stories um, where God, an audible voice comes onto the scene. And, And God says about Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That God, just like God did with Aaron in the desert, God is affirming Jesus's authority in these stories. He's affirming his authority to be our priest, to offer forgiveness for our sins, to tell us how to live in his kingdom. Now listen, almonds are cool. I'm gonna get some after church. This has made me hungry for almonds. Almonds are cool. I like those hibachi ones, all right? Those those spicy ones, not hibachi, but uh, those spicy ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, her, yeah, sriracha ones, all right? So almonds are cool. But the audible voice of God affirming the authority of the son. The writer of Hebrews is saying, budded staff is cool, but what if there's something or someone better? Last thing you have in the Holy of Holies that is mentioned is you have the stone tablets of, of the covenant, the 10 commandments that God gave the nation of Israel. Think lightning, thunder, Charlton Heston, all that stuff. And we've talked about this before, but these, uh, these uh, commandments were so countercultural in their day. Worship only God. Only God should you worship. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. These are not countercultural to us because our society has adopted and adapted these commandments. But when they were given to Old Testament Israel, they were super countercultural, uh, but God uh, gave them to them to make Israel different from every other nation around them. And listen, Israel loved the law. And they should. This was God telling them how to live. This was God uh, speaking to the nation. They loved, read through the book of Psalms sometime and you'll see how much Israel loved the, the, the law. Israel cherished it and loved it so much. And the book of John seizes on this language. He says, John writes in chapter one in his gospel, the word or the law became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word, the law of God became flesh. The law written on on stones, it's cool, man. I'd like to see the tablets someday, even after watching Indiana Jones, I'd still like to see the tablets. We don't have a lot of people my age in this. All right, that's that's okay. I I thought that line would kill, but. um, So the tablets are cool. I wanna see the tablets. Um, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, what if there's something or someone, what if there's like, instead of just the law on, on, on stone tablets, what if the law became flesh? And this is a theme of the book of Hebrews, that these things, the lamp, the bread, the law, the budded staff, they are a copy, they are a shadow of a savior who is to come. And in him, we get to look back. They were looking forward. In him, we get to look back. And in him, we get to find the reality. And the reality is better. Jesus is better than a lamp that that lights a tent. Jesus is the light of the world. He gives everyone that turns to him receives light, even though they may be in a dark place. That he is better than continual bread in the temple. He is the bread of life, offering salvation to the entire world. He's better than a budded staff producing almonds that, that affirmed to the people that Aaron was their priest. He is the son of God who came to the world in truth and grace. 
He is better than the law on stone tablets. He is the law become human flesh, showing us the way to, showing us the way to live right and then giving us the Holy Spirit to help. The theme of Hebrews 9, 1 through 5 is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now let's continue on in Hebrews 9, 6. When everything had been, had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, when he offered, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, uh, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been dis- disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, and indicating that the priests and sacrifices being offered. Uh, we're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the new order has come. So with all that groundwork being laid, I want to make two kind of fast points that he, the writer of Hebrews makes about why Jesus is different and even better. And one has to do with external regulation. All right. he, he, he mentions this throughout his book, the writer of Hebrews does, these external re- regulations that much of the law is built on the idea of external righteousness, that an outside being, in this case God, commands people to live a certain way. And it does uh, work for a little while, but if there is no heart and mind change, it can only be effective for so long, right? Th- this is Parenting 101, that you are... Uh, uh, you are exerting on your children external regulations that I told you to do that and this is going to be the consequence if you don't do it. You're just kind of getting them to comply with you. And your hope is that in some day, and I've been told this will happen, that their heart and mind will change and they'll just do that because it's the right thing to do. But a six-year-old's not that way. Take it from me, all right? A six-year-old's not that way. You've got to apply external regulation on them, and then you hope that someday their heart and mind will change and they'll, 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 they'll do it just because. Another way to think of this is the speed limit, right? We talked about this before, so forgive me for using an illustration again, but I think it works, that if our local government were to say that our speed limit was no longer, let's say, 35, but instead our speed limit was 75 or even 90, you would go 75 and 90 in probably a lot of places. Let me tell you where you would not go 75 or 90. You wouldn't go on your street, because you know that there's a possibility that your kids or your grandkids are out playing. You know there's a possibility that your wife or your husband's out for a jog. You know that your, your, grand, your grandkids could be in the street. So there is this internal thing that happens called love, that you love your spouse, you love your grandkids, you love your kids, and so that love, that internal thing, changes your behavior. And this is a good difference between the Old and New Testament. That in the Old Testament, it is outward, external regulation. In the New Testament, he's given us the Son, who's given us the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, it is an internal work. And so God, the, 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 the New Testament will say um, that, that God has written his law on our hearts and in our minds. He's written his law there because God now through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit is doing this internal work to change us from the inside out. The writer of Hebrews says in the Old Testament, external regulations, they couldn't clear our conscience. They couldn't make us feel good about ourselves. They couldn't make us feel right with God. Why? Because nothing had changed. 
And we say this all the time that you and I, we have made, a lot of times we make Christianity all about being forgiven and you wanna be forgiven and I wanna be forgiven. We need to be forgiven. But here's what's true about you because it's true about me. You don't just want to be forgiven. You wanna be changed. And the New Testament provides that through the Holy Spirit. That God is not just trying to, 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 to do external regulation that was not you know, a, a bad idea in any sense of the word. It's, it's the failure of human beings for why external regulation didn't work. But God said, we're, through Jesus, we're gonna, we're gonna do something different. And we're gonna give people the spirit who's gonna change them from the inside out. Make no mistake about it. Jesus wants to tell us how to live. There's still that kind of external word from our savior. He tells us how to live, but he does it with the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. Now, that's one point, external regulation uh, of why Jesus is better. The other is the exclusivity of the holy place and the most holy place. You'll notice what the text says. After everything had been arranged perfectly, then these things would take place. And so Scott talked about this in his excellent sermon like three or four weeks ago, that you know when the, the, when the uh, high priest would enter the most holy place, did you know he entered the most holy place with a rope tied around his ankle? And the reason he entered the most holy place with a rope tied around his ankle was this text. If everything was not arranged perfectly, what happened to the high priest? Yeah, he died. And then the rope around his ankle allowed people to pull him out. All right? Uh, Everything needed to be arranged perfectly. So there's uh, an exclusivity to it. I can tell you right now, there's a lot of national conversations happening right now about the pastorate and how young people are not going into the pastorate the way they used to. Can you imagine recruiting for the priesthood back then? So here's the deal. If you forget something, if it's an innocent mistake, sorry, we pull you out and we bury you. You'd have another person going to the pastorate again. It's like, yeah, you know, especially, you know how often I forget stuff up here. You know, I wouldn't be doing this job in the Old Testament. I can promise you that. I would have been dead 20 years ago. So, so, So it all had to be perfect. And then only certain priests could go into the holy place. And only one person could go into the most holy place. And only once a year, by blood, a sacrifice uh, so that only a limited number of people could have this experience with God. And so you know what happened when Jesus died? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. That happened because Jesus, our high priest, is giving us unlimited access to God. He has, been, he has given to everyone at any time through faith, not just once a week or a few times a year, and it's no longer dependent on a priest having everything right, doing everything right. It's now dependent on the work of Jesus who did everything right on our behalf so that we could have access to God. And here's why this is so important for us to understand. Because I think some of us, in, in, a, in a subtle way, are kind of going back to the old way of doing things. Let me kind of build it up th- this way, that, and, then, and then we'll close out this sermon. Um, you were created to know, honor, and worship God. You were created to have a relationship with him. Through Jesus, your high priest, you can. You can know, honor, worship, and follow God, which you were created to do. I believe that fully. You were created to know him. Some people are searching their whole life for this thing that's missing. It's Jesus, and you can have him. He's accessible to you. You were created to know God. You are invited into that most holy place. 
Here's the good news of this. You are invited into the most holy place to know God, and you don't have to have everything arranged perfectly. You don't have to have it all arranged perfectly. Jesus arranged it perfectly. You don't have to get everything right. Jesus got everything right. You don't have to wait till a certain time of year, like Easter or Christmas, to get things right. You can get things right now. And I say that because a lot of people are going, I, I know I need to know God. I know I need to worship God. I'm going to wait till I have things arranged perfectly. I'm going to get things right. Or I'm going to wait till Easter. I'm going to wait till Christmas. I'm going to wait till just the right moment. And when I have my life together, when I have it arranged perfectly, when I have all those sins taken care of that I feel need to be taken care of, then I'll go back to God. And in the gospel, you just don't have to do that. In the gospel, it is not dependent on you to have it arranged perfectly. Right? You'll notice there is no rope tied around my ankle up here. All right? I, I, I try to get it right, but it's, if, I, if I get it wrong, I'll fix it the next Sunday, which you've been here before when I've done that. So, you know, about last week. So, yeah, I, I, I said this and it, it wasn't right. So, you don't have to have it arranged perfectly. Jesus arranged it perfectly. You don't have to have it right. Jesus got it right. You don't have to wait for a certain time of year. You have access to God anytime you want it and need it. So here's my super, super deep question that I've been waiting all week to ask you. All right, This is years and years of theological study. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You were created to know God. And through Jesus, you are invited in. You are invited into the most holy place by your Savior who forgives your sin and makes you right and invites you in. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for Easter? Don't wait for Easter. Are you waiting till you have it all right? Don't wait till you have it all right. Are you waiting till it's arranged perfectly? Don't, it's never going to be arranged perfectly. Jesus arranged it perfectly. So come to him. You were created for it. Come to him. Know him. Worship him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. It is, man, when you read the Old Testament, your Old Testament, it is of great encouragement to me that Jesus arranged things. I am not good at arranging things. So Jesus arranged them for us. He made us right. He forgives our sin. And a lot of us are going back to the old way of things. I got to get it all right. I got to get it together. I got to wait till this special Sunday. And in the gospel, you say that's not true. That Jesus did it all. Jesus took care of it all. May we come to him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to step off to the side and we'd love to uh, talk to you about Jesus. Um, you, don't, you don't have to wait. Come to him. And uh, I know Easter's in four weeks, but you don't have to wait. Uh, you can come to him today. Let's go ahead and stand and sing this song together.